We've heard, uh, we've heard it all before, right? Uh, failing to forgive somebody, holding that anger and that grudge in your heart is like uh, drinking poison, hoping the other person dies. Um, that's the way some people have put it. And uh, it, no matter where you go, so what I did just kind of as an exercise this week is I, I just went and I, what, what, is, what does the rest of the world say about this idea of forgiveness? And if you go out and you begin to read, if you, uh, if you just Google forgiveness, what will pop up is um, all sorts of medical journal articles. This, this is one of the most fascinating parts. Medical journals that talk about um, how they know, the medical community knows that forgiveness and and a failure to forgive people, holding that grudge and that bitterness down in your heart, results in bad health, right? And uh, and then Forbes magazine and the New York Times, and uh, it doesn't make any difference what walk of life you come from. It seems to be a universal forgiveness is good. So why is it so doggone hard? Why do we have such a difficult time getting to that point? And and here's what happens. Anytime you begin the, to uh, work your way down the road of talking about forgiveness, the first thing that happens is, yeah, but what about this? And, and, and instinctively, what we do is we run to the really hard cases. What about somebody that would just run me over time? And what about that person that just offends me over and over and over? What do I do about that? Surely, surely I don't have to forgive them, right? What's amazing is this parable, this encounter that Jesus has with Peter takes you exactly to that point. The parable takes you and it pushes you right into the corner so that you have to ask and answer the most difficult question in your heart. And that is that person who has wounded you the most, who has grieved you In the most serious way, that individual you are confronted with in this parable. And so here's how we want to look at it this morning. We're going to talk about bold forgiveness. What it looks like, what it takes, and how we get it. Bold forgiveness. What it looks like, what it takes, and how we get it. Let's talk about what it looks like. And there are two aspects here in the parable. Let's, let's look at the way it begins. The context is, at the beginning of Matthew 18, Jesus is giving instruction on how to deal with a difficult case. And, and how you're to go about, we, in, the, in Presbyterian circles, we talk about it, that Matthew 18 begins to lay out what we call the process of church discipline. And essentially what that means is the process of making something right with someone. And so if someone has something against you, Jesus says, you're to go to them. And if they don't listen to you, then you're to go back and take two or three others with you. And then if that doesn't work, you're to tell it to the church. And essentially what happens there is you're, you're supposed to do everything you can to get it right with the person. And so out of that discussion, Peter 
has a question. Look at Peter's question. He comes to Jesus in verse uh, 21, and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, this is the beginning of what it looks like. And what it looks like is, first, it's infinite. It's infinite. Because what Jesus does here is he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 23 in Lamech. And, and there what we find out is that Lamech's vengeance is 77 times. Um, that's the way he, okay, he describes the way he is going to carry out vengeance. And what Jesus does is he goes all the way back there and he says, let's talk about forgiveness in those terms. Let's not, let's not talk about vengeance in those terms. Let's talk about forgiveness in the same terms, and he uses the same exact expression, which comes out to either 70 times 7 or 77 times, however you want to translate it, the idea, and I think it's probably uh, 70 times 7. It's an infinite amount. It's a number so great that you have to ask the question, right? And it's the question we often ask. How many times do I have to forgive this person for offending me? I mean, that's a real question, right? Because we have someone in our lives that has probably offended us more than seven times. How many times do I have to forgive them? I mean, isn't that really the question we want to know? That's the question Peter wanted to know. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, a bunch. At least 77 times, maybe 70 times seven, which I... I'm bad at math, but I think that's 490. Is that right? Mathematicians out there? An infinite number. A number so great that you'll, you'll just quit counting and you'll quit keeping score. And Jesus pushes Peter in that direction. And you, have to, you have to think about it this way because here's what Peter thought. Peter thought, okay, the Jewish rule was free, So how about I double it and add one? Three plus three plus one. How about seven times? That also just happens to be in the Bible, the number of perfection. Jesus, how about if I forgive him seven times? He thought he was really, he was looking for an attaboy, looking for a pat on the back. And Jesus says, how about you go infinity? How about you forgive him as many times as he comes and asks you? I don't know about you, but that puts the challenge square on our shoulders. Very difficult to think about. And it captures our attention because it pushes us to that place we don't want to go. And the place that we don't want to go is that somebody could walk all over us. Somebody could treat us terribly. And yet the Lord calls us to forgive them. And that's where we always go. Listen, I, I've, had, I've, I've been through this discussion with people. And that's where it always ends up. And Jesus gives us the answer. And he means it. This is, there's not some escape here. There is no escape in what Jesus says. 
Here's, here's the next part that you have to know. It's incredibly costly. So what it looks like. Forgiveness, as Jesus describes it, is infinite in its character. And it's costly in its nature. And we know that because the parable describes a king. And a king um, who decides that he's gonna, he, he, it, it, he needs to square up all his debts. And what you know kind of right out of the gate is the reason he needs to square up his debts is because he has a guy um, who is one of his servants who has a debt to him that, depending on how you calculate it, is at least $3 billion and could be closer to $300 billion. That's the debt, 10,000 bags of gold. And so this king is going to square up his debt and um, and so what he wants is he wants he wants he wants those folks who have uh, outstanding loans to be brought in, and he wants them to pay up. And so he's going to square it all up. And so they go out and they find this servant, and they are going to bring the the servant in to begin the settlement. And the first man, verse thirty four, twenty four, owed him ten thousand bags of gold, and he was brought to him. He was not able to pay. His master ordered that he and his wife and his children, they should all be sold off into slavery to repay the debt. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him and he asked for patience. He begged for patience and the king forgives the debt. Now, here's how you know it's costly. It's costly because the man owed him, let's just go with the low sum of $3 billion in today's money. Here's what that tells us. That tells us, one, this wasn't some yo-yo, you know, uh, low tier down uh, on the bottom rung servant. This was someone who had some sort of a stand. He had control somehow over the king's money. Because you don't go $3 billion in debt and not have access to the treasury. So he had access to the king's treasury to the degree that he could go $3 billion in debt to him. And what does the king decide? The king decides to eat it. That's what he does. Listen, that debt doesn't just vanish and go nowhere. The king essentially is saying in the act of forgiveness... I will eat your debt. You owe me three billion. This isn't a $50 football bet. By the way, I didn't lose yesterday because I did not bet on Auburn to beat Georgia. It's a $3 billion debt. Where does it go? Who is going to pay it? You see, incredibly costly for this king to look at that servant and to say, I forgive your debt. What does he have to do in order for that to happen? Because this isn't, he's not just saying, I forgive you for something that you've done to me. It's very tangible at this point. And what he's saying is, I forgive you the $3 billion you owe me, the 10,000 bags of gold. I forgive it. And that means he has to bear that. He has to own that. That means his treasury, 
Listen, for a king in this day, so, so when they came and they asked Jesus, they pulled the coin out, and, and Jesus says, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. The money literally was Caesar's. The king owned the treasury. So it was his exposure. It was his liability in the story. He was incredibly liable. His entire kingdom at 10,000 bags of gold is on the line, and he chooses to forgive the debt. And so we learn right out of the gate as Jesus tells this story. Remember, to Peter's question, how many times do I have to forgive? He not only tells him, and it's in an infinite amount of times, but he tells him it's a costly amount. It is going to cost in order to offer that forgiveness to him. Because there's no other way at this point. One, the man can't repay the debt. And I hope you're already beginning to hear shades of the gospel, right? Don't just think parable because Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. And he's already directing our attention to the cross. And what he's saying to us is, right, your father has loved you and you have, you have sinned against him an innumerable amount of times. He chooses to forgive those. And, and the way in which he forgives is very costly. And, and you know where that is heading. And so... The beginning of the parable puts us on the defensive because we all know right out of the gate. Can you forgive like this in your person? I mean, I get a New York Times article, right? Somebody that's wounded you, forgive them. You don't want to carry that around, you know. It's like bitterness in your heart and it's like drinking poison and it'll just kill you and it'll make you sick and and you don't want to, right? But... Would the New York Times article tell you to forgive somebody who, who's violated you 400 times? I, I would think what they're eventually going to say is time out. Get out of that relationship. <laughs> and so the parable is putting us somewhere that we don't want to be. And, and I hope what you're beginning to see is that bold forgiveness is incredibly difficult. It is a very high standard. So what does it take? <laughs> what does it take to have this kind of forgiveness? And, and if you look at it, we, we know clearly the story is about forgiveness. But there's actually a greater spiritual discipline that is in play. And the greater spiritual discipline that's in play that allows us, that allows a person to offer that kind of forgiveness is Patience. And you'll notice that the man asks Jesus, or he, he asks the king, verse 26, he falls on his, knees, on his knees before him, and then he says what? Be patient with me. Be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. If you jump down to verse 29, when he has the, the turnabout, when his servant is in need of that sort of forgiveness and he comes, he asks the same question, be patient with me. It's the same sort of patience that Paul exhorts us to and talks about 
in, in Galatians 5.22 where he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. It's the same patience. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, he nudges the believers and he says, with patience, bear with one another in love. It's the same patience that 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 says in the great love chapter, love is patient. That's the same patience. It's the same Patience. And that is the patience that fuels the forgiveness that we see here. And it's the forgiveness uh, and, and the patience that's there that allows us to be able to overlook the wrong. It's actually termed, it, it's, it's somewhat difficult for us to translate. The Old English had it placed as and, and translated it as long-suffering. And it actually means we're long-tempered. To put this way, spiritual patience is the inner power to bear injuries without melting down on the inside and on the outside. A spiritual patience is the inner power to bear injuries without melting down on the inside or the outside. It's a kind of patience that allows us to bear injuries from other people without melting down into resentment and anger and bitterness. Wow. Patience and forgiveness tied together. And in the case that's before, think about this. The case before the king is an incredibly serious case. It's a case that could cost that king his kingdom. Were it to default on its loans, were it, were, were it to go into monetary distress, and yet the king is able to maintain his composure and, and not melt down on the inside or the outside and to offer to the debtor forgiveness. And that's what the man pleads for. He is literally asking the king, be long-suffering with me. Don't melt down on me. Don't, don't have a, a core meltdown. Be patient with me. Give me an opportunity. And instead of that total meltdown, we read that the king is long-suffering, he's long-tempered, and he doesn't explode all over the man in some sort of bitter rage. Instead, he exercises great self-control, and he forgives the debt. It's completely the opposite of what happens next. And that's where we see where, where does this come from? Where does this patience in our hearts how do we nurture that? How do we find that? How do we gain that sort of composure so that we don't melt down in the face of great difficulty? And that's the second half of the parable. The second half of the parable, the servant who had been forgiven a great amount goes out. And it's time for him to settle up. 
And which think about it. He is going to settle up because he has lots of, it's obvious, he has lots of outstanding debts and lots of people owe him money, which is why he's out money to the guy above him. And so now he goes out and he begins to collect. And the first person that's brought to him owes him roughly a month to three months wages. Not much. Surely nothing in comparison to the debt he owed the king. And so he goes out into the, into the community. He finds this man. And look at verse 28. He owed him a silver, a hundred, a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him, verse 28. He began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. And you'll notice in our English translation, there's an exclamation mark there. Pay back what you owe me. There were a couple of you that were sleeping at that point. I just saw you. Nicole? The exclamation mark is there because what what you and I are supposed to hear is the meltdown. He is now in full meltdown mode. He grabs the man. He begins to choke him. It's the exact opposite of the patience that was rendered to him by the king that he begged for. And now here he is in the midst of a full-blown meltdown. That's why we get the pay back what you owe me exclamation. He demanded. He demanded it. Verse 29, the fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, don't melt down on me. Don't have a meltdown on me and I will pay it back. And he could have paid it back. Unlike unlike the guy prior, unlike the servant who's now demanding this, who couldn't have ever paid it back, this guy can pay it back. And yet he refused. Verse 30. Instead he went off. He had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. And he said, you wicked servant. And here's the rationale. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you. That's the point for us. This is what the gospel should be doing for us. And this is challenging. But the gospel should be reminding us each and every day of the, un, the unimaginable debt we had to God the Father. A debt so great we could have never repaid it. You see, there is no way for you and I to pay the Father for our debt. And yet, He forgave it on account of Christ. He sent His Son to die for us. He ate the debt. He, he, 
He loved us that much that He went to those lengths to consume the debt, to bear the burden of the debt, to forgive us. And that gospel is what calls us out towards each other to find that sort of forgiveness in our hearts. Do you see? We are that second servant. We're the servant that has gone back out. If somebody were to come to us with a, really with a pitiful debt, nowhere near the debt that we have, could we not forgive them? Can we not forgive them in light of what has happened to us? How could we not do it? Corey Ten Boom tells a story, the Jewish Holocaust survivor. If you haven't read her story of forgiveness, um, it's quite powerful. But she tells a story about she was going back into Germany after World War II. And she would go back and she would do talks. And at these talks, she said she would talk about forgiveness. And one of the main points of her talks is that she would talk about how God takes our sin and He throws it into the ocean and He remembers it no more. And she said that she did numerous of these talks and at them she would tell the audience all of these things. And then she said normally, typically what would happen is that they would all stand up and they would grab their coats and they would walk out and no one would say a word. And she said she was at one of these and she was talking about God's forgiveness. And she was talking about how God takes our sin and He throws it into the sea and He remembers it no more. And um, in, in typical fashion, at the end of the talk, everyone stood up and, and uh, put their coats on and silently took for the doors. Except there was a man in the back who started making his way towards her. And when he got up there, he introduced himself and he, he mentioned something that she had mentioned about a camp that she had been in. And he told her that he had been there too and she instantly recognized him. And he was a guard in a camp that she had been in. And he began to speak to her and she knew that she had come face to face with a moment. Could she do what God the Father had done to her? as he held out his hand and he asked for her forgiveness. He needed forgiveness from her because he knew the position she had been in. She was one of those people in his camp. She may not, he may not have recognized her personally, but she recognized him. And she tells a story about how she stood there going over all of the aspects of forgiveness and, and, and she couldn't, Get her hand to go up. And he stood there with his hand out for what seemed like an eternity until she was finally able to go over the gospel enough in her head that she reached out and she shook his hand. And as they shook hands there together, she knew that she was able to forgive. It's a powerful story. But it's this story. It's the story that Jesus is telling in the story of the parable to Peter. Pillar of the church. 
the foundation of the church. And Jesus looked at Peter and, and he said, Peter, this forgiveness that you are going to give needs to be infinite and it needs to be costly if it's going to be gospel-centered. And that's what he says to us. And this morning, we just happen to have the most perfect picture for it in the table that is set. Because in the table, we get that picture of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We get to hear it in the gospel, but in the supper, we get to see it. And one of the aspects of the supper is that we get to We get to remember and we get to relive and we get to recount what happened in that room that night as Jesus sat with his disciples. And so as we come to the supper this morning, let me just remind you, this is not my table. It's not the Presbyterian church's table. It's the Lord's table. It's his. And he is the one that gives the invitation. And so if you're here this morning, you've professed Christ as your Savior, you've been baptized you're trusting in Him for your salvation. The supper is for you. If you've never taken those steps, if you're not a member of a evangelical church in good standing, then let me, let me encourage you, even invite you, to, to ponder the gospel this morning, to think upon all that Jesus has done for you. And then let's get together and talk. But the supper is for you. It's for all of you. It's not for those of you who have it all together and have been all, you know, you're all cleaned up and you're not just in your Sunday best, but you are the best. This supper is for you if you're in the fight. If you know what it is to live in that cycle of sin and repentance and faith. If you're there, if you're in that fight, this is the supper for you.